Welcome to Beyond Sunday School. Glad to have you here this week. And uh, we are uh, into episode two of the background of the New Testament. And uh, we record this live on Wednesday nights, seven o'clock via Zoom. So if you are interested in being a part of the live recording, would love to have you join us. Just let me know and I'll make sure that you catch uh, the link to uh, to the Zoom recording session. And uh, if you are a part of that, then you get to ask questions and, and be a part of uh, some of the discussion that you may hear throughout the evening. And so there are a couple of folks uh, who are on watching this week. And so you may you may hear some voices and uh, that's, that's who they are. Uh, and you too could be a part of that. So uh, let me pray and then we will... We will dive in here. Heavenly Father, thanks for tonight as we spend some time looking at uh, the background of the New Testament. I pray that uh, this information would help us to uh, know and understand the scriptures a little more deeply so that we might be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, Hey, so last week we looked at the political world of of the first century there surrounding the the time of the New Testament. And uh, this week we are looking at the social and economic world. And uh, just so uh, for those of you that uh, may be jumping in here with this episode, we are kind of working our way off of uh, the New Testament survey by Merrill C. Tenney. And uh, that that was published by Erdman's. So uh, you can... I'll make sure to include uh, a link to this uh, in the show notes. So if you want to, if you want to have, grab the book, uh, you're that, that would be great. Um, But that's kind of, we're following his outline. So uh, this week we are looking at the social and economic world. Now, uh, one of the, one of the reasons we want to make sure that we kind of wrap our minds around the social and economic world is because a significant part of studying the scriptures of, of trying to understand what is happening there and then how to apply them to our lives is being able to see the places where um, the Bible, the, the, the culture and society of the Bible parallels and intersects our own. And so just like last week, when we looked at uh, the political world, you know, we, you can begin to see uh, some of those intersections, some of those ways where some of those places where their kind of leadership, their kind of, uh, you know, the, the role of empire and how that begins to play uh, throughout the story of the scriptures. Uh, you can, you can begin to see uh, how our current world mirrors some of that. And, uh, and it provides these good opportunities um, you know, for us to make these connections and be able to pull the scriptures into our time, our place, and apply them in a very specific way. And so the same is going to be true here for the social and economic world. Uh, these, I think as we walk through this, you'll begin to see uh, some of those places where uh, there are these intersections, where there are these, these moments where you go, oh, that sounds familiar. That's kind of like how it is. Uh, you know, here in America in 2021, uh, you know, 2000 years later, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing uh, to realize that the world hasn't changed all that much in 2000 years. Um, people are people and societies tend to structure in some very similar ways across the ages. So uh, for instance, uh, as we dive in here, you know, the reality is, is back, you know, in the first century, they had wealthy people, they had poor people, they had um, people who were in a budding middle class. There, uh, there were people who uh, the religious folks uh, really despised and hated. There were people who were on, you know, the fringes of society. There were people who are very religious and were sucking up to uh, those in political power. 
so, you know, the, as much as the world has changed, uh, the world, the world has, has stayed the same. So, uh, as we walk through this, let's, uh, we're going to, we're going to look at a couple of things. Um, first we are going to look at Jewish society uh, and kind of how is, how is Jewish society structured, uh, around the new Testament time. Then we're going to look at, uh, the non-Christian society or Roman society. Uh, how was, how was it kind of structured? How did it's, you know, how, how did things kind of work through there? Well, we'll look a little bit at culture and, uh, what were, what were some of the, you know, some of the cultural developments that happened during this time. And, uh, you know, and then we will look at finance, transportation, and travel, uh, just to try to get, help us get our minds around what was this world like that Jesus and his disciples and uh, the apostles in the book of Acts were, were living in. So, uh, what about let's let's start here the Jewish Jewish society what what was it like well Jewish society and the non-religious society uh, were pretty similar in the sense that you had uh, you know you had a wealthy aristocracy and then you had uh, you had the poor and some middle class now. In Judaism, in the in Jewish society, uh, the aristocracy was made up of, of by religious elites. So these would be, um, you know, like your your high priests. You read in the Gospels. Well, as we get into the Gospels, we'll we'll learn about something called the Sanhedrin, which was kind of this this high council of Jewish religious elites uh, that was comprised primarily of wealthy landowners. And so, uh, while while pagan society wasn't necessarily um, organized around uh, religion, uh, Jewish society was. And so it was. So you had your uh, your chief, you know, your chief priests and their families. Uh, you had leading rabbis. You had the leading Pharisees. These kinds of guys uh, were the made up the the aristocracy. And they, they kind of were, uh, you know, in a sense, the, the virtual rulers of Judea. And we catch that, we catch that flavor in the gospels. When you read through and you find out, you know, especially as, you know, we're recording this on uh, the Wednesday after Easter and where was, you know, where was Jesus taken first? He was taken to the Sanhedrin. He was taken to this court. Um, these, these were the ones, these were the people who, uh, who kind of ruled Jewish society. Uh, so, you know, you could, you know, you could look at, uh, some of the, some of the key figures, some of the guys that, that we know about who were on the Sanhedrin, um, would have been Nicodemus, uh, who Jesus talks to. In John chapter, uh, what John chapter three it is, uh, and then you get uh, Joseph, you know Joseph of Arimathea who donated uh, his tomb for Jesus's body. I mean, th- these were these were some some heavy hitting guys, and uh, the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin had all kinds of power. So so you have that, but then you have the majority of people who, uh, were poor. They were, they were the working, they were the working poor. They were farmers and artisans, some businessmen. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Jewish society is slavery was pretty much non-existent. Um, there just wasn't a lot of slavery going on, uh, with, within Jewish society. And this was, this was probably uh, because of how um, just just how Jewish society worked with the commitment to Torah and caring for one another and helping each other, and there was this greater sense of communal identity. So even though most of the people in the area were poor, uh, they were able to help and keep one another from falling into slavery. And so uh, most most of the people in Palestine at the time were freedmen, 
And uh, that's, that's a really significant thing because that is not the case in broader Roman society. Uh, and we'll, we'll get, we'll get there in a minute. Um, social divisions among the Jews. Well, actually I'm going to read this, uh, this little paragraph here from Tenney, uh, because I think it's, I think it's important. And I think it gives us a good sense of, of what's going on. He says, social divisions among the Jews were somewhat restrained by the common obligation, which the law imposed upon its followers. If they were all equally responsible to God for obedience to it, they were consequently morally equal in his sight. Although the Jew regarded the wealthy man as especially blessed by God's favor and therefore as righteous, there was no reason why any man should not by good works merit equal favor. While an aristocracy tends to be self-perpetuating, there was at least the inherent moral equality which kept the Jewish oligarchy from becoming too oppressive. So, you know, what, what he's saying there is that commitment to the scriptures, commitment to the Old Testament, commitment to the law kept Jewish society moral. And, and that morality was seen primarily through a lack of oppression of the poor. So you had, you had a trust, you had a connection between the aristocracy, between the wealthy elites and the poor. Uh, there, was, there, was some, there was some connection there, a unifying force uh, through, through the scriptures and through their identity as God's chosen people. And so the, the wealth dynamics, the societal uh, kind of separations and things that we see in Roman society uh, were much, much more muted in, in Jewish society because of that driving religious force. Now, uh, pagan society or Roman society, uh, you know, how is, how is this structured? Well, uh, first they had an aristocracy, a clear aristocracy. And, uh, and it was the, the stratas that we're going to talk through here of, as far as how the society was structured, they were clear, they were defined and you, you landed in one of these and there really wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of moving up. If you fell out, it was very difficult to move back up. So if you were a part of the aristocracy and something happened where you lost uh, your wealth, your stature, your power, it was very, very difficult to then rise back into those ranks. And so as a result, the aristocracy did everything they could do to protect their power, protect their money, protect their uh, pride of position within uh, their within the society. Uh, it, this was absolutely a critical thing. Um, so these this this aristocracy controlled um, all the public lands. They controlled. Uh, they, they controlled everything. They, as, as Rome went to war and would conquer new places, uh, these, this rich arist aristocratic class of people would, uh, would take control of various, as various parts of, of the land. They would take over businesses. They would take over all, all the best they could. And so they were exploiting. Um, they would exploit every aspect of, of a conquered people for their own financial profit. And, uh, and as a result, I mean, they lived, if you were, if you were an aristocrat in Rome in the first century, you lived a great life. You, you lived a life of luxury. You lived the kind of life that, you know, the American dream is made of, right? I mean, you were, you were, you were living high on the hog and it was, and it was, it was amazing. Um, so from there, they had a middle class. Uh, this middle class was, you know, for us in America, when we think of the middle class, we think of, of a working class um, that is built through in industry, right? The middle class in America came about uh, primarily through uh, in a huge way through the auto industry. And uh, this, you know, people being able to go work on the line, 
uh, work eight hours, make not just a living wage, but make enough money to be able to have recreation. So they weren't working multiple jobs anymore. They had, um, you know, they had retirement savings. They had all these kinds of, all of that was developed through this working class uh, and it built a middle class in, in our nation. Now in Rome, that's not how the middle class was born. The middle class in Rome was developed uh, primarily because of slavery. Uh, so as, as Rome conquered more and more people, as Rome conquered more and more nations, took more and more uh, people captive, their, their numbers of slaves rose. And as uh, times got harder, uh, then you had people who were freedmen falling into slavery. Slavery was uh, a way to pay off debts and, and that kind of thing. And so you have this, this development um, of, of the middle class uh, that, that is just, it's, it's built on, it is built on the back of slaves um, these, the, the problem though, one of the things that happened, uh, in Rome was the middle class was by and large, also the war class. They were the warriors. They were the ones that were, that were filling the Roman legions. They were the ones that were filling the military ranks and through Rome's constant war, uh, the middle class almost completely disappeared. Uh, so, so even though one existed, it was small. Uh, and it did not carry a lot of did not carry a lot of power. Um, the arguably one of the the largest groups uh, it were called the plebes, and uh, these were the poor people. These were these were the people that were just trying to get what? by. Plebes. So the plebeians. P l e b e s. Yep. Yep. P l e b s. The plebes or plebeians. Yep. They were, these were, um, these were people who were living, you know, hand to mouth. You know, they were, uh, they were, their living conditions were horrid. They, uh, they were completely given over to whoever would come into power and would promise them, uh, you know, food. Basically, if you were, if you wanted to angle, to to come into power as as an as the emperor or you know move up into power in the senate you had to prove you showed that you were going to be the one and you made the promises that you were going to be the one uh, who was going to provide bread and circuses for for the masses um the the mob this is the mob this is the uh you know the these were these were people that had uh, that had no employment. They had no, uh, or if they did have employment, it was intermittent. Um, and, uh, and honestly, the, the plebes had it worse than slaves because if you were a slave, at least you had food, at least you had clothing, at least you had a place to live. Um, the, the plebes in Rome had none of those things promised to them. And uh, so you can imagine when you have tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of these people, um, you know, what this is the largest group. Yeah, this is, this is the largest group. Um, And uh, yeah, they, they made up, they made up the biggest uh, part of the population, right? I mean, now when I say biggest, it's, it's by a small factor because slaves, um, slaves were, were the, were right there with them. Uh, they estimate that less than half of Rome's inhabitants were free men. Mm. So think about that for a minute, the largest empire in the world, uh, and half, they figure less than half were free. The majority, um, were slaves. And, uh, so the, these, so these numbers of, 
um, you know, poor and slave, they, they are, they go, I mean, they're, they're right there with each other. And so it's, uh, um, it's, it's, it's just a, it's just a crazy thing. Now, now when we talk about Roman slaves, we also have to understand that we're probably in, in many cases, we're not talking about, uh, the kind of chattel slavery that we saw in the American South, right? Um, the, the slaves in many of the slaves in Rome, not that their conditions were good or that it was good to be a slave, but their role was different. They weren't necessarily doing manual labor. They weren't necessarily out in a field somewhere. Uh, many, many of the slaves were uh, teachers. Many of the slaves uh, were, you know, were writers, were philosophers. Um, they were, but they were in the employ and, and they were enslaved by uh, the aristocracy and the rich. And uh, so, you know, they would, uh, you know, publishers would, they would have slaves doing copying um, and as working as copyists. Uh, so some of these slaves who were brought in from conquered territories were, you know, educated, were, um, you know, the, the, so, so when we, so when we think about the slavery in the first century, um, we have to understand that it is a mixed bag. Some of them were, it, some of it was chattel slavery. Some of it was um, the kind of awful slavery that we see in, in America uh, you know, at our founding. Um, but some of it was this really weird kind of story where, you know, they would conquer a nation and they take their, their intellectuals as slaves and use them to train and teach, uh, their, their children. Um, so, uh, it was, it was a very strange, uh, it was a very strange environment. Um, so one of the things we have to also recognize is that slavery is ever present in the new Testament. Uh, it's, it's just, it's just there. It's, it's like the, it's like water to a fish. Um, it is, it is present as a, as a background thing. And so this is why in household codes, you know, you will see in the Bible, you'll see in the New Testament, Paul talking about uh, masters, this is how you treat your slaves, trade slaves this is how you treat your masters. You have Paul writing um, in Philemon to a slave owner about his runaway slave Onesimus. And now how as a follower of Jesus, do you, do you deal with that issue? So uh, what we, so in the, so it's hard um, for, for those of us with modern sensibilities, we want the Bible to come out uh, with a, um, with a clear moral statement on, on slavery uh, that that's not there, uh, not in a definitive kind of way, right? Not in the same way um, that we see on some other moral issues. However, the principles of following Christ uh, didn't really create an environment that was conducive for slavery. And we see that clearly in Paul's letter uh, to Philemon. He is, he is very subtly, um, but at the same time, clearly, uh, you know, explaining to Philemon that Onesimus is, is his brother in Christ. And that, that changes things. Um, so, uh, another, another paragraph here, uh, that I want to read that because Tenney does a good job of handling this question of slavery. He says the institution of slavery is reflected in the new Testament by the frequent use of the term slave and by occasional references to the ownership of them. Nowhere in its pages is the institution attacked, nor is it defended. According to Paul's letters to the Asian churches, there were both slaves and slave owners who were Christians. The slaves were enjoined to obey their masters and the masters were commanded to not be cruel to them. Such was the power of Christian fellowship, however, that the institution of slavery gradually weakened under its impact and finally disappeared. Uh, so 
so you see this erosion of of slavery as a result of uh, the self-understanding of Christians as brothers and sisters. How do you enslave your brother and sister? Uh, this this changes the entire dynamic, and this is the this is the dynamic that we see Paul, um, you know, really working hard to help people understand as he's shaping identity through his letters, uh, is to understand that they are part of a family. Now, uh, the uh, you know, if you've got a ton of people that are unemployed, that are poor, that are out of work, what are you going to have? You're going to have crime. You're going to have a lot of it. And uh, we catch a we catch a, a sense of the Im- immoral character of the Ro- of Roman society uh, in Romans chapter one, 18 through 32. Uh, I mean, it's. Uh, there was there was nothing. There was nothing in Roman society to call people back to a moral uprightness. And so in Romans 1, 18 through 32, we have Paul kind of describing the state of, of, of morality uh, at that time in Rome. And it is not an overstatement. Um, it is, it was, it was just, it was bad. Like it, there was, there just was nothing to call people back to some moral standard. Everybody was living uh, in a way that was right in their own eyes. You know, we're kind of going back to the judges a little bit there. Um, and so you can, you can just imagine if you have a huge, huge portion, huge percentage of your populace that is out of work, that is poor, they are going to do whatever they need to do uh, to, uh, to get theirs. And, and that's what you see uh, in Rome. And so it's this, in, in, in Roman society, crime was, crime was ever present and, uh, and it was a pretty significant issue. So, uh, that's kind of the structure of, uh, of the social world. Um, now, as far as cultural, uh, attainments, you know, kind of the, what did, what did we see culturally, uh, develop? Well, literature, uh, you know, you have some, uh, under Augustus, uh, there was a literary revival in Rome, uh, the most, uh, the most important person there is Virgil, you know, he wrote the Aeneid and, uh, you know, you have, uh, you know, you have Ovid, you have Horace, uh, there's, so there's this, um, there's this, this Renaissance, uh, under, under Augustus, uh, after him, there's just not a lot. Seneca wrote some, uh, he wrote some, some moral philosophy, uh, you know, but they're just, there's just not a lot after that. Uh, Rome by and large just wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a writing literate, literary, uh, it wasn't a really a literary empire. It wasn't, it wasn't what they were about, uh, in art and architecture. Uh, that's a little bit different story, right? They were, uh, the architecture of Rome exists to this day. Some of the roads, some of the Roman roads that were built in the, you know, uh, in the last century before Christ or uh, into that first century are still, some of those roads are still being used to this day. Uh, They were built so well. And the way they built them is they would dig it out. They'd take off, uh, you know, some top, a, a good layer of topsoil. And then they would, they would lay down, um, you know, they'd lay down kind of this, this, this road, uh, it's kind of road, road peat, I guess you could call it. I don't know. Um, I don't know how you want to lay out those, lay out those words. Uh, let's see. What's the right word here? Um, I'm going to put my fingers on it. Um, Uh, yeah, so they would, um, they'd fill it with roadbed. Uh, they'd fill the roadbed with three different layers of road material. Uh, and then they would crown the center of the road so that water would roll off. And then they would top that with, uh, with stone to pave. So you have these roads that, uh, were, were just an unbelievable feat of architecture, 
And uh, it, it just, it was, it's unbelievable. Along with, you know, the bridges, the aqueducts, the theaters, the baths, uh, they had mastered the use of the arch, uh, which is, you know, it's one of the most solid um, structures that you can build. And, and the testament to their architectural prowess uh, is, is that their, their buildings, their bridges, their aqueducts, their roads still exist today. And uh, the Coliseum, you know, was, was built in AD 80 under, you know, under, under Titus. Right. I mean, you know, and you can go, you can go see the Coliseum today. It's, it still stands, which is an amazing, it's an amazing thing. Um, they weren't so much into, uh, you know, art, you know, necessarily as far as painting and that kind of thing. Uh, some of their statuary uh, is, is, is pretty, is still, still around, still in existence as very pragmatic um, very, uh, you know, very much tried to get at the realism of, of things, uh, but really art and really the architecture is, is what stands out. Uh, music and drama in, in Rome was very, was very base. Uh, it was, uh, it wasn't, you know, you, you don't have any, you don't have any Mozarts or Bachs or Beethoven's coming out of Rome. Uh, music was uh, just kind of a, it was, it was coarse and cheap. That's, that's the best way you can, you can put it. Uh, so was the drama. So was the plays. Uh, they were usually street plays. They were usually things just to try to entertain the masses, to try to take their minds off things. And they were, uh, they were base. They were uh, just, um, uh, most of it was just kind of making fun of things mocking the world they found themselves in and uh and it just wasn't it just wasn't that great there's just not a lot of staying power uh the arena is is significant uh you know the arena was where the gladiators would fight and uh some of those gladiators were trained and their goal was to uh become rich and famous just like you know our boxers or our mma fighters today um, but they would oftentimes they would fight slaves, captives of war, condemned uh, criminals. You know, they were and the whole thing was uh, just to, again, to entertain the masses, to keep them occupied and, uh, and focused on other things. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, it, it was just it was brutal beyond comprehension and so movies like gladiator uh, are pretty you know they're not that far off at the kind of brutality uh, that you saw in uh in the arena so uh languages the language of the time uh there were four primary languages being spoken in the new testament times uh you had uh latin um which was the language of the law courts and the literature of Rome. So if you wanted to kind of be, show your intelligence, your wisdom, show that you were smart and educated, you spoke and wrote in Latin. Uh, Greek was really the lingua franca or the, the, the common language. Um, and so, you know, for instance, we don't, we don't have uh, early writings of the New Testament in Latin. Uh, but the New Testament is primarily written in Greek, uh, along with along with Greek, uh, at least in Palestine, uh, you had Aramaic and Hebrew uh, as, as being significant uh, language sets. So, uh, you know, Aramaic was the predominant tongue of of, of Palestine of, you know, Jesus Jesus most certainly smoke, spoke Aramaic, probably also spoke Greek as he was engaging with Gentiles. Um, and uh, so those, you know, those were, those were kind of the big ones. And then you have, um, then you have Hebrew, which was, again, uh, Hebrew was to Palestine as Latin was to Rome. Uh, classical Hebrew 
uh, was no longer, it was basically a dead language at this point. Uh, It was, you know, used in uh, the temple, used in the synagogue. It had been lost uh, really probably since the the time of Ezra. And um, and so the the rabbis uh, used it. And so you, you know, you needed to be an educated elite to, to use Hebrew. Now that said, uh, you know, uh, so, so when Jesus was put on the cross, um, the sign over him, King of the Jews was, was written in three languages, uh, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And uh, so all three of those languages in Palestine would have been read, known, and understood. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to consider the reality that, um, you know, as we read back through, every, probably every person you read about in the New Testament uh, was trilingual. They probably knew some Latin. They certainly knew Greek, and they certainly knew Aramaic, uh, which, is, which is mind-boggling because you know, most of us can barely speak English. Um, and, you know, to learn a second language in America is like, wow, you're, you can't believe you did that. That's amazing. Um, but this was, you know, these were, these were not stupid people. <laughs> Sometimes we look back on history and think that we're so much smarter uh, than folks from the first century. But we need to understand uh, these were trilingual people. They could, at the very least, speak some of three languages. They probably read fluently in two and spoke fluently in two, which is which is a, a remarkable, remarkable thing. Um, one of the other things that's interesting about Aramaic is church tradition says that some of Jesus's earliest sayings were uh, probably written down and circulated in Aramaic. Uh, this, uh, you know, the, those source documents uh, were probably what were used for uh, the writing of, of the Gospels. So uh, it, that, that's a pretty, pretty amazing thing. And then along with the reality of Greek being this common language, the New Testament being able to be circulated in Greek, that, some, that was something that both Jew and Gentile could read and comprehend and understand. This was such a unique and important time uh, in history, that the known world was so unified with uh, with a singular language set, uh, which was which was pretty pretty amazing. Uh, now, uh, as far as science goes, uh, not a lot not a lot was happening here. Uh, most of the science uh, that, you know, especially as far as we think of modern science, um, just wasn't just wasn't really a thing. Uh, the Romans pretty much were building and using uh, the, the work that had been done by the Greeks, uh, by and large, and the Egyptians. So, you know, they, they just didn't, they just didn't um, make, uh, you know, a lot, of big, a lot of big strides. You know, by the time that Rome, you know, by the time that we get to the New Testament, like, Everybody knew the world was spherical. Uh, everybody, uh, you know, they, and they knew that it, it spun on an axis. Like they had figured all of that stuff out. Um, uh, the Greek scientists uh, had, figured, had figured all of that out. The, what the Romans were most concerned about was geometry. Uh, and that was because they used it uh, to map out land and to divide it and to organize land. That literally was what they, what they were most, most into. Um, so, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was, that was probably the, the biggest, the thing that they just kind of used, used the most. Um, and then schools, education, how did education come about? Um, oh, one last thing before we move away from science. Uh, this, what's important, What's really important about, about this is we need to understand that we live in a scientific age. Uh, the New Testament, the Bible, was written in a rhetorical age. What they cared most about were rhetoric. They cared most about making a good argument 
and convincing other people of your argument. This was, this was the height of, of, of education, which we'll get to next. Um, science, especially science, the way we think of science, uh, just was not a concern. It was not a part of their world. And so we need to understand that, especially the Old Testament and the New Testament, those books, those writings are not interested in those questions that so often we as moderns bring to them. They're not, um, they're not science texts. They're not there to make scientific claims or defend scientific claims. And, uh, and so it's, it's not that they're anti-scientific. Um, it's just, it's just not what they're about. They're, they're about different stuff. And so we, we need to recognize that as a society, the questions they were asking were very different than the society that we live in and the questions that we are asking. And so, um, and so that's, so while we talk about, you know, finding those places of, you know, where, where we intersect, we also understand there are places where we're, we're going the opposite direction. And they just, they just weren't asking the kinds of questions that we moderns ask about, about science and even the way they write and think about history, right? We, we write and think about history in a scientific way. They did not. They wrote, they wrote and thought about history in a rhetorical way. They, were, they did history for the purpose of telling family stories and shaping identity and trying to help people understand who they were, where they were, and when they were. Um, they were not. They were not necessarily trying to to do history in the way we do, and so when we approach, we we just have to be aware of these things as as we approach the Bible. Um, so, uh, education, uh, by and large, was privately done. Uh, you know, if you were uh, an aristocrat in Rome, you you had a slave that that taught your uh, that taught your children. And, uh, you know, they, there were some, there were some school rooms, uh, you know, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't the norm. Uh, Roman boys were, were by and large, uh, taught and educated by these private tutors until they went to places. There were, there were universities, right? Like the university in Tarsus and some of those other places, uh, where, where they would go, uh, to get advanced, uh, more advanced education. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was a very different style and, and really, uh, to be truly educated, uh, you needed to be wealthy. So, so while they were as, while they were significantly intelligent, you know, they, they could speak three languages and these kinds of things, the formal education, uh, is not the same kind of formal education that we think about uh, today. So uh, a lot of a lot of the education that was done, uh, especially as they went into uh, maybe some some of these uh, smaller schoolroom settings, they were um, they were done by uh, memorization, um, reputation, you know, repetition. They, they were just kind of given the information, they would repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And oftentimes, uh, they were forced to just remember it and regurgitate it through, uh, and, you know, with the use of uh, corporal punishment, if they screwed up, if they made mistakes. Um, so uh, safe to say they did not have uh, good quality educational psychology. Um, they didn't really, uh, you know, they didn't have the they didn't have the kind of great teachers that we have today. That's for sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, this was uh, oratory was huge. Um, so these students would would memorize poems and epic poems, and they would be expected to recite them perfectly, and not just recite them in some wooden kind of way, uh, but to recite them with you know with the appropriate emphasis and feeling and all that kind of stuff, so that they could show that they understood the poetry. Um, so this was, this was the, this was kind of the emphasis, uh, Jewish education, um, was pretty much, was pretty similar. Uh, their, their curriculum, uh, was more focused in the old Testament. 
you know, they, they basically taught uh, through, through the synagogue and, and, and with, with the scriptures. Um, so, uh, so that was kind of, you know, kind of, kind of where, kind of where education landed moral standards. Um, you know, crime was the only news of the day. <laughs> um, you know, it was, uh, it was just not a, it was just not a great, it was just not a great time morally. Uh, Palestine, uh, was a little different than the rest of the Roman world, uh, because of the influence of, of, of the Jewish scriptures. Um, but by and large, um, you know, uh, moral depravity was just kind of, it was just kind of everywhere. Uh, human life was, was cheap. It wasn't, it wasn't worth much of anything, uh, particularly girls in Roman society. Uh, there was a, uh, a guy named Hilarion uh, wrote to his wife, Alice. He said, should you bear a child? If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. And uh, this was kind of the attitude. Uh, so, you know, you would take, you'd take a girl and just set it on the side of the road. And, uh, and that, that would be the done of, that'd be, that'd be it. And uh, so one of the things in the early church that, that the early church started doing is when uh, Romans, you know, when Roman citizens would, would do that, uh, folks in the early church would go and, and would collect the children that were left exposed, that were left uh, to die and would raise them as their own. And this was one way in which the church grew. Uh, this is, you know, this is a, a great example of the, the ethic of life um, that has been a part of, of the church from the beginning. Um, so uh, it just, it was corruption was everywhere. Corruption in politics, uh, debauchery in uh, the pleasures, fraud in business, deceit, superstition. It was, uh, the Roman world was just an absolute mess. Um, so, uh, how about the economic world? Well, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of similar in some ways to our world. They lived in a workaday world. They, they lived in, you would go, you'd work and, uh, you'd make your money and, uh, you would work, you'd work sun up sundown. And, and it was, it was a hard, it was a hard way to go. There wasn't a lot of recreational time. There wasn't a lot of uh, downtime. You were, you were working uh, the primary, uh, the primary things that we see uh, in, as far as their economics was agriculture. Uh, you know, the world was different 2000 years ago. Uh, there was a lot more farmland, uh, places like North Africa, which is now, you know, basically a desert. I uh, had huge, huge farms uh, with cattle grazing and uh, fruits and vegetables. And so there was a lot of agriculture that was being done uh, in, the, uh, in, in the empire. Industry, uh, manufacturing wasn't, wasn't really a thing. Uh, wasn't, wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, you know, you had, you had some, some industry being, being done, some things uh, you know, being, being put together. Uh, but it just, it, it wasn't, uh, anyone that was trying to produce some mass goods like copper, uh, small wares, furniture, uh, generally were produced, uh, by local craftsmen. And if they're trying to do more, uh, they would, they would use slaves. So there, it's not like they, they were not an industrialized people. Uh, a lot of the luxury goods were imported, uh, from Africa, from the East, you know, they would, they'd bring in, uh, gold, ivory, rare wood, uh, pearls and jewels came from India, furs from Asia and Russia. Uh, Amber came from the far North. Like this was, uh, this was kind of, kind of where they brought things in from, uh, now money, the way money worked was really interesting is, is kind of, and we, and we catch glimpses of this in the gospel narratives. Um, so there were two units of, of measure uh, in, in, in the Roman Empire. You had the denarius and you had the aureus or a pound. Now, one pound was worth 40 denarii. And so uh, the denarius is probably one you've heard 
uh, a number of times because it's mentioned quite a bit in the in the New Testament. Um, some sometimes it gets translated as penny or shilling or something along those lines. In uh, according to Tenney, in actual monetary value, at least as of nineteen whatever sixty five. Uh, a denarius is worth about 17 cents uh, in, in U.S. Uh, money. Uh, however, back then, uh, the purchasing power of a denarius uh, was, was, was significant. It was, it was equal to about one day's wage. Uh, so, you know, so one denarius was, was a big deal. Now, what, what, was, what was so interesting financially is that as the empire grew and expanded and it took over these locales, they already would have a money system in place, right? They'd have their own coins. They'd have all of that. And so what do you do as the empire? Do you say, well, you got to burn it all and you got to get it all out of circulation? Nope. You decide which of those is a denarius and which of those is a pound. And now they're a denarius and they're a pound. Well, what about travel? What happens now? Well, when you go from province to province and they all have their different coinage, what you have to do then is you have to go find somebody that's called um, a money changer. And the money changer would help you exchange your local, your local coins for the place that you were at now and to get their coins so that you knew that you weren't going to be cheated. And the person you were you know, buying from knew that you weren't trying to cheat them, except that that middle guy, the money changer, he was making his profit. He was taking his cut. He was corrupt, uh, you know, crazy corruption, uh, which when you start wrapping your mind around this and you start thinking about, um, you know, where was Jerusalem? What was the, what was kind of the placing of it? Here's Jerusalem, the crossroads of the empire. Um, tons of people coming in, coming out. You have uh, Jewish people coming on pilgrimage from all over the empire uh, for festivals to worship at temple. And so where do the money changers find themselves? In the temple courts. Doing what? taking advantage of the people coming in to get their money changed. It was a, it was a corrupt, horrible practice. And it was happening in the courts of the temple, the place of prayer, our father's house. And so now you think about that story of Jesus coming to the temple and clearing it of the money changers. It makes a lot more sense. It's not just Jesus walking in and being like, People are selling things. I'm angry. I hate capitalism. That's not what was going on. He walked in and saw injustice taking place because that's what the money changers were doing. They were taking advantage of people and they were corrupt. And they were, they were in a very real sense, stealing those people's money in the very shadow of the house of God. And so when you wrap your mind around that, it changes the, the dynamic of that story. Um, because the issue there was significant economic injustice. If you wanted to, if you wanted to make money quick, you got into the money changing business uh, because you could, you know, you could take advantage of people. And Jesus, Jesus un, undid that. So, um, uh, so that was, yeah. So that that's kind of the finance kind of thing. Uh, We've already hit on uh, the Roman roads as far as that was, that was the primary way that uh, folks traveled. Uh, but the way that goods were, were moved around were primarily through shipping uh, in, the, in the ocean. Um, there were some barges that took advantage of the rivers and tributaries, but we don't read much. We don't catch much of that in the New Testament. We don't even have a lot of evidence of that uh, in, in just kind of the general uh, history. Most of the shipping was done via the Mediterranean um, in those larger bodies of water. Uh, we see, you know, we see Paul uh, throughout, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's on boats all the time in Alexandria. 
uh, had some of the best. And, you know, Paul, we see Paul on two Alexandrian merchant ships um, in, in the book of Acts, right? We, we catch them uh, in Acts chapter 27, verse 6. And uh, then he's rescued in Acts chapter 28, verse 11 by another Alexandrian ship. And that one we know the name of is the two brothers. So, uh, you know, that was, so that's kind of how, how they, how they got around. Um, so, uh, this is kind of the economic and social world of, um, of the new Testament. And, uh, so next week we will, uh, dive into the religious world. Uh, the first thing we're going to look at is, uh, the non Jewish religious world. So kind of just general, general Roman society. And what were some of the uh, religious perspectives there? And then, uh, in two weeks, we will spend some time looking at, uh, Judaism and first century Judaism and, and how it, uh, you know, kind of the role it played. And we may, we may need to split that up into a couple of weeks, uh, because there's just, there's just a lot there and it is really, really important to try to wrap our head around it. It's not as clean cut as, uh, maybe some, uh, fundamentalist Christians want to make, uh, biblical Judaism uh, or biblical first century Judaism to be. So, uh, as we wrap this up this week, do you guys, you guys have any questions about anything that we talked about, uh, tonight? Very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I, I have a question. Yeah. Um, you were talking about the money changers. Yeah. And you said that when the Romans would take over other countries or whatever, that they would decide what was a denarius and what was a pound. What I what I didn't quite get was how did the money changers end up in the temple courts? Yeah. Why? So they so they would, you know, so when pilgrims would come. I mean, the, the temple court, the temple was, was really kind of the center of, it, it still is the center of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, so if you wanted to uh, have access to the most people, the easiest, and if you were a traveler, uh, probably the first place you would show up to is the, are the temple courts. You'd, you'd go there first. And so it was just good business. It was just smart. They're like, hey, here's the crossroads. Here's where everybody's showing up. Let's go there. And, uh, and our clientele will just come to us. We'll set up shop right here where everybody's coming. Um, and so that's how, that's, that's why they set up shop there. Okay. And, uh, so, and you need it. And, and it's so sad. Like it's, it's one of those things where it's a good idea that got so corrupted, right? Because for the Roman empire to try to take out these different provinces, coins from circulation would have been impossible considering the scale of the Roman empire. Um, and so you needed this group of people who knew that, okay, over here in Alexandria, that coin is a denarius and here in Jerusalem, this coin is a denarius. And so you needed, you needed that person. Um, but it just, it just, it became, it was, it was run amok, um, by, by greed. I mean, yeah you know? And well, so, we, yeah, showing up in the temple just made a lot of good sense. It was yeah, good but business. We stay there to also buy a, a offering. <laughs> they went to the temple so they could buy an offering to, to uh, mm -hmm. make. So that's one reason because they couldn't, if they had traveled quite a ways, they couldn't bring a lamb or whatever it was with them. So they had right. to buy one there, right? Yep. That's why I always understood why they were there. That was my background. You know, that I always thought that's why they were there. I didn't realize that it was sort of a general thing for uh, exchange. Yeah, yeah, and and it's and it's interesting because the, um, you know, so yeah, people are people are you know buying and selling offerings, um, but the the real issue, you know, the real issue behind all of it was. Uh, you know, we're, we're the, we're the money changers. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. It was yeah. Because that's the, um, you know, that is the, you know, when you have, you have these money changers, um, that are, that are, that are doing, 
this. It just, it was so unjust. Um, and for it to be done in the context of, of the temple, it just, Jesus couldn't, he just, it, he couldn't stand it, you know? So anything else? Nope. Nope. It's nope. not. All right. Sounds good. Well, um, then uh, we will, we'll be back next week. Uh, for those of you listening to this uh, afterwards, boy, we'd love to have you as a part of this uh, time together on Wednesday night, starting at seven o'clock. So you can ask questions and be a part of the conversation. And um, otherwise, please, please share the this episode with with your friends and until next time love well